Thank you, Kerry, for that reading. Uh, It'd be great if you can keep your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 7, as we will be referring to it throughout. Uh, So let us uh, continue in prayer. Uh, Our Lord God, we just pray that you will be with us now as we read and hear from your word. We pray that you open our hearts and our minds to know clearly your will for us, to know that your spirit will guide us in in where you call us. Uh, Lord, we pray that what is said and done here is done for your glory and the goodness of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want us to consider what does it take in this world to get real justice? Uh, What does it take in this world to get real justice? Uh, I was watching the other day reading about a heartbreaking case in which the judge was forced to lay down a punishment on someone who was clearly not necessarily guilty of anything too wrong. But the punishment itself was quite harsh. And the judge uh, said... Uh, in his work, in, I'm paraphrasing, he didn't say it in this exact way. He said, unfortunately, my job isn't to do what is just, it is to uphold the law. The reality of the world that we live in is that as much as we try our best to live in just societies, most of our societies are woefully unjust. Uh, it, particularly in the Western world, we do have a world, uh, a justice system that is, uh, disadvantages the poor and the, the minority. I remember once hearing a line, uh, and it's a bit uh, of a negative way to view the world, but it does have some truth to it, that a fine simply means it's free and legal for a rich person. As much as we want to pursue justice, and as much as I think we inherently desire justice in this world, it is very hard for us to find it. Many very evil men and women who have done horrible and atrocious things in this world have gone to sleep and passed and never faced any justice in this world for their crimes. And so as we look to this passage today, I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to consider the reality of the absence of justice in this world and the necessity then of God's judgment in bringing it. The truth of the matter is that without God's judgment on this world, there is no such thing as justice. And God's judgment on this world is a terrifying thing to witness and hear about. Our reading today from Deuteronomy chapter 7 uh, is a terrifying uh, passage to read in some ways. There's some beautiful, wonderful, encouraging things in there. But obviously there are a few lines that uh, today in a Western world, relatively relatively sheltered to the, the ideas of warfare and things like that, that is to say that we witness them on television but have not necessarily experienced them firsthand. Uh, These passages can be quite concerning. These commands to kill and destroy uh, entirely groups of people can be very upsetting for us as we read them. But really what this passage is, is highlighting to the people of Israel as they prepare themselves to enter the promised land is to, to highlight to them that they need to understand God's judgment, both in practice and what it means for them in their lives. So the first thing that we see in this passage is the severity of God's judgment on those who receive it. Uh, As we start with uh, verses 1 to 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you out... um, So there's going to be a lot of verses on the screen. A lot of them will be cut off, but I'll be reading them in their entirety. I've just left what I think is important on the screen for you. But it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jezubites, Seven nations larger and stronger than you. It's important to remember that. 
And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Uh, Earlier this week, I was watching a a sermon being presented. Uh, I call it a sermon. I think, to be honest, it was really a rant uh, of a, a pastor and he spoke more and more about the sinful nature of the world and the, the, the evilness of the politicians, and he got angrier and angrier and angrier as he preached. He got madder and madder till he finished his, his sermon, if you want to call it that, saying that the Christian insurrection is coming soon. It's a growing uh, movement that I'm seeing across the world in which people who identify themselves with the faith of God are calling people's the people of faith, to violence. And many of the, of the men and women who have done this, they, they draw on the Old Testament parallels of warfare and destruction, particularly in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, as their motivator for this kind of action. They say, they look to this idea of national warfare and see themselves as someone who needs to participate. But as we look at this verse, it's important that we actually recognize a few key things about what is being discussed here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The first thing that we need to understand is that this is a one-time event. Uh, If you were to skip over Deuteronomy chapter 20 and read through it, you would see that God actually lays out to the people of God two different types of warfare. Uh, The first type of warfare is is probably the more one that we would accept. It's a warfare of defense where they are forced into battle and they're forced to to take the, the battle to their enemy to stop them from constantly attacking them. And they're instructed to show mercy and compassion on the people when they surrender. But then there's a second type of warfare in which the seven nations, as mentioned here, are specifically named, in which they are to be shown no mercy. We need to understand that the, very, the specific descriptions of warfare here are only are exclusive to these people at this time. It is not a general call for Christians to engage in any sort of warfare. The second thing we need to understand is that the people named, these tribes of the land of Canaan, as we call them, the Canaanites, they are not what you would call an innocent people. There's a reason in the the Old Testament that once the people of God move in, that the surrounding nations don't seem to put up much of a fuss about the Canaanites' destruction. There were a people with a record for blood sacrifice, particularly for child blood sacrifice for animal worship in a sexual nature. They were a perverted people, so consumed with their bloodlust of worship that if you look in the descriptions of them in the Old Testament, they're described in Leviticus as being so disgusting that God is going to vomit them out. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, which we won't be looking at, but it says it here, it says, it is not because of your righteousness, that is the people of God, or your integrity that you are going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he saw to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a culture that is entrenched in its blood worship. And God makes it clear in Deuteronomy 9 that that to keep his promise to Abraham, he needs to provide for them a place of land, and he has chosen this land because the people in it are so beyond redemption that they need to be removed. And so what you're actually seeing here 
is this idea of God's judgment being brought on the people of Canaan. And I actually want to encourage you, it's not unusual when you think about the history of, of Scripture. Uh, last year we looked at the book of Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel, King Nebuchadnezzar is the primary force of God's judgment on the people of Israel. The nation of Babylon conquers and destroys Jerusalem. It is not unusual in these times for God to use people to enact his judgment. And so in this, we see the reality of God's judgment on the people of Canaan. And the reality for us is to understand that this judgment is severe, uncompromising, and unavoidable. But there's also an element, I think, of hypocrisy when we read this uh, and begin to be outraged in our hearts about what we read. Because I remember sitting down with a bunch of teenagers in Scripture years ago, uh, and I said, do you think it's ever right to kill someone? Uh, obviously, the teenage boys came up with all these very creative reasons as to why it's okay to kill someone. But when we really got down to the nitty-gritty, it became obvious that they actually said, yeah, you know what, maybe the death penalty is okay for some things. Now, I... I, I I'm not trying to get political here. I'm, I'm an advocate for not having the death penalty due to the flawed nature of human justice systems, but that is not really relevant. I, just, I actually don't, don't even need to share that with you, so take what you will with that. Uh, but we often are outraged, and people, you know, Richard Dawkins, uh, Ricky Gervais, I don't know if you know those guys, many people, particularly British for some reason, have pointed to this passage and other passages of, of warfare in the Bible as reasons why they cannot ever follow God. And yet I think for most of us, we are accepting of death and destruction as long as it's to people we don't like. You know, we think that rape is a horrible, horrible thing, yet how often do I see people joyful when they hear of someone being raped in prison? We think of killing and murdering as horrible, yet how many would be gleeful to see an enemy leader executed there is a hypocrisy in humanity when we read this to, to deem ourselves as though we are somehow a better arbiter of who gets to live and die in God's justice than God himself. And what we see in this passage ultimately is that this is God's justice, right and good justice, being brought on a people who are beyond redemption. It doesn't mean we should find it joyful or exciting, but it does mean we should understand and recognize the severity of what it is to be under God's judgment. Secondly, in this passage, though, we see this idea of God's judgment and, and the, the reality of purity under it. God's judgment of the people of Canaan is framed in the expectation that God's people are going to reject the very things that the Canaanites worshipped. Uh, these two verses, I'll, I'll read to you them completion from verse, seven, verse 5 of Deuteronomy 7. It says, This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possessions. Deuteronomy 7.25 says, The images of their God you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into the house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detested, for it is set apart for destruction. 
We see in this, these, these passages and throughout chapter 7 two, I think, really key ideas of what God expects of his people in regards to their purity. Firstly, there's this reality that the people of God are to be a reflection of who God is. They are to reflect to the world the wonder of God. They are described in this passage as a treasured possession, a holy people set apart. It's interesting that God again frames, if you've, if you've read and recognized this passage, he frames all of this once again in the, the salvation that he brought them out of Egypt. They are to be a nation in which the word of God, the power of God is seen to the world around them. He emphasizes in verse 7 how tiny these people are and how much bigger these nations are that they're going to fight against. And it's a reoccurring theme, if you've ever read Judges, that God makes it clear that the world will not witness the might of the Israel people, they will witness the might of God. And the problem with the practices and worships of the Canaanites is that if they were to partake in those, they would no longer be worshipping and recognising God as the one who provides for them. If a guest were to enter their home and see the idol of some god sitting on their bench, even if it was just there because it looked pretty, they would begin to wonder whether they have other gods helping them out. It's not a coincidence if you read in the book of Joshua, this, this happens. A man steals some of the silver from the people of Canaan and his family and himself faced the judgment of the people of God in death. They are, not to have, they are to have no part in the worship of the Canaanite religion because as God explains it to them, it's almost like having an infection. Uh, we all are a little bit more aware of infections. You know, we wash our hands to happy birthday twice now. Are we all still doing that? I'd like to, I'm not really, I don't have... Anyway... But we understand a little bit that even the tiniest infection can cause such devastating damage to the human body. And God makes it clear that even the tiniest act of worship, of falling into idol worship, can damage the spirit and the faith of God's people. They are to be a holy people set apart, the smallest of all the nations, yet the most powerful of all, because of their God. They are to be pure, to not have anything infect them. It's actually why so much of this is framed in the idea of marriage and intermingling. Uh, they're making, God makes it clear, you know, today we generally marriage for, for love and affection, as in we, 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 we would marry someone because we are, you know, to use the young people language, they'd say they're a thing and then eventually they might get married. As most of us, we marry for love and for other things like that. Back in those days, it wasn't commonplace. So as we look at this, we, we, we're a bit horrified because we think, well, what if you really love them? But that wasn't really a concern for the Israelite people. The reason why marriage was so bad was because God was afraid of the influence that the Canaanite women would have on these men. Because for them, the worship of idols was so ingrained in who they were as a culture. It would be like marrying someone from a different culture and, and demanding and expecting them to reject all of that and immediately become an anglo Australian, it's impossible, and it's, it's, you know, the example's a bit flawed because I actually think it's, it's quite a cruel thing to do to someone today, but back then the point is that they could not change who they were, and therefore it was unacceptable for them to be married into the people of God, for they may leave people astray. And this is what we saw with King Solomon, married many women across many lands, and ultimately was led astray by these women. 
I want to clarify, that is not a reflection that women are somehow temptresses that will pull away faithful men. It's just the reality of leadership at the time and the dangers of marrying anyone who did not share the faith of God. They were to be pure in light of God's judgment. And finally, they were to understand and be faithful in light of God's judgment and God's own faithfulness. I'm going to read to you quite a large bit of uh, from verses 7 to 11. It's quite a big chunk, but I think it's significant to read. It says this, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keeps his commandments. But to those who hate him, he will repay to their face, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give to you today. Again, what God is, is doing in this section here is he's, he's looking to the future while at the same time looking back. And as you read in from verses 12 onwards for a little bit, he really describes this, this beautiful, wonderful experience for the people of God. He will love you and bless you, verse 15, increase your numbers, the crops of your land. Verse 14, you will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men and women will be childless. There's this imagery of the beautiful, wonderful future awaiting them because of the faithfulness of God as he draws them back to his rescuing them from Egypt and the promises that he made to Abraham. Know therefore the Lord your God is God. There is a faithful reassurance that what is going to transpire will happen because the God who rescued them from Egypt is with them today. And that's significant because as we read on in the rest of the passage, he says to them, do not be terrified. For the Lord your God, verse 21, who is among you is a great and awesome God. As they go into the land, as they become the instruments of God's judgment on the people of this land, they do not need to fear anything because the Lord, their God, is with them. The Lord who is God is with them. But all of this is framed in a, in a warning as well. Those who hate him will repay to their face. He will repay to their face by destruction. Those who disobey him, who worship the other gods and give in to idol worship, will face God's wrath. It's an encouragement in a way because it's a reminder of the justice that is universal in, in who God is. It's an encouragement because they know that the people who are sinful in the land of Canaan that they are coming to possess will be destroyed as God has promised, but it is a warning for they will face the same judgment if they turn away from him. They are to be faithful as the Lord their God is faithful. We have here God's judgment and its severity God's judgment and its purity, and God's judgment and its faithfulness. And at the center of all of this, I, I, what I think stood out to me most in this is actually the people of God, the people of Israel. Uh, they are sitting there in, in the middle 
of all of this. Literally, if you look at the structure of the passage, literally all the stuff about the people of Israel is right in the middle, superimposed with the warfare discussions and the warnings. But when you look to the history of the people that God is going to use to to bring his justice on the world, it is a history of failure. It is a history of wandering the desert for 40 years because they rejected God and wanted to go back into slavery. And in those 40 years, they gave in to idol worship, to worshipping other gods, to marrying women and being led astray. They fell and they failed and they failed. And yet God takes them. In Deuteronomy, it says, you will be my people, I, the Lord, am God, and I will go ahead of you. They are an undeserving people. They are no... They have, have done nothing to earn the favor of God, and yet God remembers his promises to Abraham. And in all of this, we actually see God's judgment and his grace upon the people of God. That though undeserving as they are, God will use them for his purposes and bless them for his glory. Ultimately, I think we actually find ourselves uh, in a similar position today. We, are, we can be uncomfortable with the judgment of God upon humanity. Uh, and it's right, because we as God's people are created in his image and we are, are programmed to respect that image and to see death as wrong. But if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the salvation that brings you eternal life, then you must believe in judgment. The judgment that the people of Canaan faced is the judgment that waits this whole world. Without that judgment, we have two things. One, first of all, we have no justice in this world. No assurance that the wrongs will be righted. No assurance that evil will ever be punished. There is no justice. But also, at the same time, without that judgment, we have no reason to worship and follow Jesus, and our faith is wasted. We may as well live, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Without judgment, there is no salvation. And the third thing, I said two things, but the third thing that this should do, if if you are here today and you believe in the cross and you recognize the fear and the severity of God's judgment and marvel and know that through Jesus Christ you are forgiven, then there is a motivation to, to do what you can to save this world from its own judgment. We are no longer a nation storming into a promised land to uphold God's God's law. That bell's quite early, so don't stress. To uphold God's law. We, We are no longer a fighting army who needs to rise up an insurrection against our governments. We are a nation that knows no borders. We are a kingdom of God that is not bound to one place, but is instead bound to the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ. And through that, every tribe, language, gender, peoples can come and worship God and be freed from that condemnation, that judgment that awaits them. If we accept the reality of judgment, we have reason to share the love and the message of Jesus to all, a message of salvation. If we understand the severity of judgment, we understand the mission of the gospel. If we understand the need for purity in our lives, we we look in condemnation upon 
the people of the Old Testament. Why do you keep worshipping idols? Yet I would argue that idol worship today is bigger than it has ever been in the history of the world. We don't worship the idols of gods, but we worship the idols of people. Most of the cultural shifts and change in our society for the last 30 years have been by celebrities advocating for worldviews that they hold to. Some of those are good. I I don't want to say that they're all bad. But what does it say about our culture that the rich and famous who got there by being good actors somehow dictate what our world should be? We worship idols in many shapes and forms, things that draw us away from God. We we bring things into our lives that are distractions from prayer, from the opportunity to read the Bible and the opportunity to be together as God's people. If we understand the severity of God's judgment, we also understand the need to be pure in Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not about looking at the world and being angry because someone has said something. It's about looking at the world and knowing that Jesus is the only thing that speaks into that with any meaning and the only thing that speaks into us with any purpose and holding on to that more than anything else in our lives. And finally, we remember God's judgment and his faithfulness. When I uh, preach on these things, I feel guilty because I would love to pretend that I am the supercharged, powerful evangelist that's been out all week. And there's been times where I've tried, but there's been times where I've been afraid or distracted. I'd love to think that I have been 100% pure in my faithfulness to Jesus Christ and not being distracted by things, but I have failed. We are called to be faithful to Jesus Christ, but the wondrous and marvellous thing is that even in our failings, we know that Christ is faithful to us. That the cross, the gospel, is more powerful than our failings, is more powerful than our sin. Just as the Lord God is faithful with the people of God and led them into the land of Cana, he is faithful with us and leads us to the kingdom of God. And though we will fail, He will be faithful and restore us if we ask. My encouragement to all of us today is to consider the judgment of God in wonder, in fear, and in thankfulness. For it is severe, it requires purity, but it expresses faithfulness. Let me finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is with us, a God who has brought us out of condemnation, brought us out of sin and death, and into forgiveness. Father, we pray that you will help us to know and love you as we should, to draw closer to you daily. Remove the distractions from our hearts and our minds that draw us away from you, and help us to embrace and love you wholly as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.